I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Thank you, Jeanette, for reading the scriptures for us this morning. Before we jump in and start to get to work, as is our custom, we should pray and ask God to help us. So we will ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text before us, and then we will we'll start to work our way through it. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we recognize today and always, Lord, that your word has been clearly spoken, and yet you must still help us, your children, to understand what it is that you are saying. And so, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, undoubtedly there are those gathered here who have struggled with how to encourage their friends, how to lift up those who are downcast, and how to strengthen those who are despairing. God, I pray for those this morning who are looking more how to encourage one another, that you would show us exactly how that is done, according to the example of Paul. Father, your people are called to be a people of faith, and as a result, a people of courage. But we need each other. We need each other to be encouraged, to be strengthened. And we need to be reminded again today, Lord, that all of this should be done according to your word. God, we pray that you would drive that truth home into our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you've ever had a friend who was downcast, who had suffered a defeat, who had struggled through some trial or misfortune, you know how difficult it can be to try and lift that person up, to, to give that individual the encouragement to continue on, to press on. If you have ever struggled with that, then this morning's text provides for us a roadmap for how God calls us to encourage each other. Now, this morning, before we jump in, I'd like to just pose to you a question. Undoubtedly, you are all familiar with who Winston Churchill is. You understand, if you've taken any course in history, that he was the prime minister of Britain, the United Kingdom, during World War II. And all throughout that long, protracted struggle with Nazi Germany, all through those years from the 30s into the 40s, it was the responsibility of Winston Churchill to strengthen the resolve of the British people to continue the fight with Nazi Germany. And undoubtedly, you probably, over the course of many years, have probably heard audio recordings of different speeches that Winston Churchill gave during those years. And probably, if I were to say to you now, what is one speech that you can recall, one speech that really stood out to you, many of you would probably say, oh, I know just the one, we shall fight them on the beaches. Any of you heard that speech before or have read it before? A number of you are raising your hands indeed. Funny thing when Winston first gave that speech, there was no recording made of it. In fact, if you've ever heard an audio recording of it, you hear Winston Churchill reading the speech, but that recording that has been made famous, that is played over and over again all these decades later, that recording was made nine years after the war had ended. Nevertheless, this speech is looked to by many historians today and many orators politicians, teachers, professors, anyone who has ever studied the art of persuasion and how to use your words in order to encourage and strengthen and to call people to self-sacrifice and to heroism, undoubtedly you have studied that speech. As you look at this speech, the power of Churchill's language is undeniable. It's considered a true masterpiece. But it wasn't 
welcomed that way when it was first spoken on the 4th of June in 1940. Here is the conclusion of Churchill's speech. And this was what was read across the BBC, the radio, that evening. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or will eventually fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all of the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag nor fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if this island or large portions of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, should step forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Now, the line that made the broadcast that evening was, we're going to fight them on the beaches, we're going to fight them in the sea, we're going to fight them in the air, we're going to fight, 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 we will go on till the end. We hear that and we think, yes, that is it, rah, rah, that's right, let's go fight, let's stand up for ourselves. But it wasn't really received that way in 1940. If you believe that somehow Churchill lit a roaring fire of courage and resolve in Britain on that particular day when he gave this speech, then you're badly mistaken. Although the Dunkirk evacuation, in which 300,000 of the expeditionary force of, Brit British, of the British Army had been successfully evacuated, although the evacuation had been considered a success in its own terms, it had only been necessary because of the sweeping German victories, the Blitzkrieg that had humiliated Britain and her allies. Churchill openly acknowledged in this speech at the beginning, parts of it that are not widely read or recalled, that what had happened in France and in Belgium had been, quote, a colossal military disaster. The Labor Party MP, Emmanuel Shinwell, recalled at that time, we were very much depressed as a result of the events that led to him making this speech. And for all of Winston's oratory, he could not remove that depression. Churchill's own wife, Clementine, would tell a friend in short order, quote, a great section of the Tory party were not behind Winston. They advocated for terms to be negotiated with Hitler and they had received this great speech of his in sullen silence. Now, Churchill was a politician, and politicians have been known to take polls from time to time. And indeed, a poll was taken in the days and the weeks after he gave this speech. The Ministry of Information's report came to Whitehall, and it said this, quote, The grave tone of the Prime Minister's speech 
gave the impression and may have contributed in some measure to the rather pessimistic atmosphere of Britain today. The contents of the speech were, on the whole, expected, but further apprehension has been caused throughout the country on account of the PM's reference to fighting alone if necessary. We look back through rose-colored glasses, and we see this speech as something remarkable. But in the moment, it was not remarkable. He was undoubtedly trying to call his people forth to fight, to courage. But they heard all of that, and they just put their hands in their pocket and continued to sulk. More defeats were coming. More difficulties lay on the future. He could not spark a roaring bonfire that day. But the reason I draw your attention to this is because as Churchill spoke, he opened the eyes of his people to the hard truths of imminent catastrophe, but he called them to something deeper. He spoke to something in their souls. He concludes his speech. In God's good time, we pray, the new world, with all its power and might, step forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Oftentimes we think, okay, when we're in tough situations, we need to say something, we need to somehow be charming or somehow persuasive, and and the result of our speech, the result of our encouragement to our friends is that when they hear us, their response needs to be, yeah, you're right, and they're ready to go and charge the enemy gun machine gun nests. That is not the reality of what has happened. That is not the reality of what often happens. Have any of you ever tried to encourage your friend only to have them sort of shrug and say, I guess you're right? And have you ever been a little bit disappointed after your amazing oratory that that was the response? Believe it or not, that is probably the response that Paul received on this particular ship in the middle of the Mediterranean in Acts chapter 27. Paul gives a very short, very concise speech with the intention of strengthening those sailors and crewmen, those passengers that are on that ship in the middle of the Mediterranean, And undoubtedly, after he gave all of these assurances, their response was probably ho-hum. And yet, God begins to work nonetheless. This morning, I invite you to consider this particular passage, but I want you to look at it with realistic perspective. We're not going to unpack for you today some amazing formula in which if you will just follow this formula, one, two, three, four, and then abracadabra, hocus pocus, everybody's just going to jump up with joy and be like, yes, let's do this, then you're going to be badly mistaken. That's not what's going to happen here today. Nevertheless, what we need to be reminded of is that we are called to the ministry of encouragement. We need to have realistic expectations of what an effective ministry of encouragement looks like. And what it looks like is speaking truth grounded in the authority of God's word, anticipating a lack of faith, and persevering nonetheless. Look with me in Acts chapter 27. We pick it up in verse 12. 
the, uh, the traveling companion of Paul, Luke, describes the storm as no small tempest in verse 20. And when he does so, he's not kidding. Northeastern winds on the Mediterranean at that time of year are unpredictable, terrifying, and deadly. These were treacherous hurricane-forced winds. They arose quickly out of nowhere, and they made it impossible for this ship to turn back to Fair Havens or to turn north toward Phoenix, which was their original goal. It's where they were headed. And so Paul and his companions and all of those on that ship were at the mercy of the winds. They were driven wherever the wind took them. Thankfully, though, as Paul knew, the Lord was with him. He had already had this promise that he was to stand before Rome. He was to go to Rome and preach the gospel in Rome. Nevertheless, he wasn't sure of the fate of all those around him. Would they live? Would they die? He didn't know. He didn't know. What had started out as a 40-mile cruise along the coast turned into several days of sheer terror. Luke said both sun and stars were totally obscured, quote, for many days. They had no way of knowing how far they had gone off course. They had no way of even knowing where they were. If you don't know where you are, then how can anyone else know where you are? There is no possibility of rescue. There is no possibility of salvage. You are lost. The terror of both passengers and crew is steadily intensifying. It's going to be bad. You're convinced you're going to die. You can just sense the panic growing. The day after the storm begins, verse 18 says, they lightened the ship. What this means is that they apparently started to dump cargo. Now that's how you make your paycheck. So you don't dump cargo. You don't throw out your paycheck unless you have to do so in order to save your life. They were clearly terrified. And so some of the cargo was obviously kept for ballast, but the vast majority of it was thrown overboard. We know that some of it must have been preserved because in verse 19, Luke goes on to say, on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands, meaning they didn't throw everything overboard. The tackle was the gear that they used to, uh, to manipulate the sails in order to drive the ship. It's the gear that you pilot the ship with. They held on to that. They threw off all the rest of the cargo, but then they came to a point where they're like, we need to throw off even the tackle. So they're throwing everything off, even the basic gear that they need to maneuver this thing in the hole hopes that the ship would not sink. If you're trying to steer your ship in the storm, you need the tackle. But if you throw the tackle overboard, the only reason you would do so is if you were getting so bombarded with waves that the ship was under threat of sinking. You want to lighten it. You want to create more buoyancy. So then you start chucking the gear overboard. At this point, you've lost hope of getting a paycheck at this point, you don't even care about being able to steer or pilot the ship. You're just clinging to the possibility that this thing will not sink underneath you. You just want it to stay floating. The picture that Luke paints is that everything basically not nailed down was cast into the sea in a frenzied effort in order to live. Baggage, personal items, it's all going overboard. And it's at this point that Paul speaks up and says, paraphrasing, See, I told you. Such wonderful, encouraging words, don't you think? Such a powerful, riveting, Winston Churchill type of moment. Dear brothers and sisters, I told you so. That's what he says. If you look, it says in verse, uh, we pick it up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, 
you should have listened to me. I mean, that's how he begins. You should have listened to me. He goes on to say, you should not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury or loss. But he goes on to say that they should take heart. Now, take heart is another encouragement to have courage. It is the exhortation to have strength, to continue to act, to continue to do the right thing. We know that's the major thrust of his speech because he says it not once but twice, and he says it at the beginning, and he repeats himself at the end. If you're looking with me in uh, verse in verse 22, he says, yet now I urge you to take heart. That's how he begins. I urge you to take heart. So the first thing he says is, I told you so. And then he says, even though, take heart. That's how he begins his speech. And then he also says it at the end. If you jump down to the end of where he's speaking, verse 25, he says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God. His first exhortation is take heart, and he reiterates that at the end, take heart. So the focus and the thrust of what Paul is encouraging these sailors to do is to have courage, to take heart, to believe, to have hope, not to despair, not to give up on life. They are clearly in a dire situation, and he starts off by saying, I told you so, yet have heart, take courage. When he urges them to take courage, we would be wise to pause and to ask ourselves, what does it mean to take courage? All of the ancient writers wrote about it. It was considered the preeminent virtue. Whether you're reading Plato, whether you're reading any of the uh, Greek philosophers into the Middle Ages over and over again, this virtue is extolled as the preeminent virtue, this idea of courage. The ancients defined it as a mean between two extremes— You had abject cowardice on the one hand, where you would do anything to preserve your life, you would run away from any danger, and then you had foolhardiness or brash, sort of irrational behavior on the other hand, where you were a madman, and you would just run headlong in any danger, whatever may happen, because you weren't going to allow anyone to call you a yellow-bellied chicken. So on the one hand, you are a full chicken, on the other hand, there ain't no way you'll ever be accused of that, and as a result, you will stupidly and foolishly just throw yourself in any danger that presents itself. And of course, the ancients said what, this, what, what courage is, is it's the ability to sort of navigate a middle path between these two extremes, to stand up for that which is important to you, and to never give in, no matter what. And of course, when you read Aristotle or any of the ancient philosophers, the question is presented, well, what is important? What, what ought we to stand for? What what should call forth courage? Which is why we can never really define this virtue by looking at secular philosophers. Indeed, I think the best place we should turn to understand what courage is, is the book of Joshua, chapter 1. I invite you to just flip there. Keep your place in Acts chapter 27, but I want to define courage for you biblically this morning. Now, you understand the context of Joshua. Joshua is getting ready to lead the armies of Israel into the land of Canaan. He is being sent. He has been called to lead, and he's being sent into Canaan by God, who wants to give the land of Canaan to them as, uh, as their land, as their resting place. And of course, he has this ragtag army of untried and unproven soldiers, and he is going into a land that is dotted with heavily fortified, magnificent cities 
the most heavily militaristically fortified cities in the ancient world. He is going up against people who have previously been described as giants, enormous men, warriors, battle-hardened and proven veterans. And so here's Joshua with his ragtag army going up against an insurmountable force. And God comes to Joshua in that moment, and he makes this statement. I invite you to read with me. We pick it up in verse uh, verse 9. God says to Joshua, chapter 1, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? He goes on to say, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, again, is facing overwhelming odds, but God gives us this picture of courage here in verse 9, what he is calling for in Joshua as a leader of his people. Now you say, I didn't really see much of a definition there, Pastor Joshua. Again, you'd have to understand how Hebrew poetry works. We have here a couplet. We have a couplet of courage and strength and another couplet of fear and dismay. And these two parallel each other. They are the opposites of each other. So even though no strong, no no clear-cut definition, biblical definition of courage is given, we know its opposite, and therefore from its opposite, we can discern what it is that God is calling forth in his people. Be strong and courageous is paralleled by do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. So the opposite of strong is weak or fear. The opposite of courageous then is dismay. So he calls for Joshua to be strong and courageous Whatever that definition is, it is the opposite of fear, and it is the opposite of dismay. When we look then at these two words, fear and dismay, fear is describing an emotion, and God very much so is calling upon Joshua not to feel that emotion. Fear parallels strength, but dismay parallels courage. Dismay is not the same as fear. Dismay has to do with the reasoning faculties. It's your ability to calculate, to come to a certain type of decision based upon how you're weighing all of the evidence in front of you. Dismay is when you look out and you see what's in front of you and you begin to calculate the feasibility, the possibility of whether or not you will have success. Now, many of us are calculating the feasibility of whether or not we can mow our grass this afternoon. And I'm willing to bet many a man is here today dismayed at that prospect. Are you feeling the emotion of fear? No, probably not. You look outside, you're like, yeah, it's hot outside. And your wife is like, "Mm mm-hmm, you need to go mow the grass. And you're like, "Mm." you're not afraid But when you consider the obstacles in your way, the hardships you will have to endure, when you consider what's involved in the task of mowing your grass in 40 degree plus heat, you may be dismayed. You calculate what's involved and you are discouraged from pursuing that course of action. Now, that being the case, when God calls forth Joshua to have courage, courage then is not an emotion 
if its parallel is dismay, then what we can understand is that courage is a calculation to continue to press forward regardless of what you're seeing with your eyes, regardless of the difficulties that are present in front of you. Undoubtedly, some of the ladies are here thinking to themselves, I will encourage my husband. I will urge him to have courage in the face of this heat this afternoon and go out and mow that grass. In Joshua's case, the difficulties that he is facing are difficulties of losing. He's taking an inferior army up against a superior army, and they're playing for keeps. This is no game. This is no chore. This is war. This is down and dirty, cutthroat, swords and cudgels, beating each other to death, warfare. As Joshua is looking at what is in front of him with his eyes, undoubtedly he will feel the emotion of fear. And God calls upon Joshua not to feel the emotion of fear, but rather to be strong. And as Joshua begins to calculate the odds of success, God calls upon Joshua not to calculate in such a way that he is dismayed, that he is persuaded not to step forward into the conflict, but to calculate with courage. How is it that God is able to ask Joshua to do that? He says, quote, have I not commanded you? God was the one that told Joshua to go forth into conflict. He starts off by saying, I commanded you to do this. Then he says, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Rather, have the opposite of those two things. Rather, be strong and be courageous. He starts off by saying, I am the one that has commanded you. Do this. And he concludes with, am I not with you wherever you go? The foundation for what God was calling Joshua to have was not based in thin air. It was not just some sort of rah-rah, feel bad, don't, don't feel bad, feel good. It was based on the command of God. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here with these guys. If you flip back to Acts chapter 27... What Paul is calling forth is for them not to be dismayed. What he is calling for is for them to have strength. They're going to need it in order to survive. They're still going to have to work to pull this ship together. They're still going to have to work together as a team to keep this ship afloat. They're going to have to be strong. They're going to have to rise to that challenge. The only way they're going to rise to that challenge is if they are not dismayed. Right now, as they're looking at the storming seas, as they're looking at the raging waves, they are dismayed. They are thinking there is no way we can survive. They have slipped into despair. They have given up, as Luke says, all hope of survival and rescue. If they are in such a state of of despair, they are clearly dismayed. They have no chance of of survival. Why would they rally themselves to the cause of trying to keep the ship afloat? When Paul says, take heart, he is employing this biblical definition that we see in Joshua chapter 1. He is calling them to have courage, which means they cannot base their decisions and they cannot base their actions solely on what they're capable of seeing with their eyes. You get up, you look across the, the, gang, the gang whale there of the, of the ship, you look out at the oceans, guess what you see? You see nothing but death. And Paul is saying you need to calculate differently. He gives them the exhortation. He says, 
He says, yet now I urge you to take heart, he says, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Courage then, if we're going to define it, courage is the resolve or the decision to act with faith, with self-control, in order to pursue the right course of action. It is not necessarily an emotion. It's not something you feel. Indeed, you might feel very afraid. You might be feeling the emotion of fear when you are called upon to be courageous. Do you see that, First Baptist Church? Do you see that, First Baptist Church? Good. I praise that you are listening. We are called as followers of God to have courage based on what he says, based on the promises he makes, even if we may feel fear when we look at the world around us. This is what Paul must have if he is to encourage his friends. And so his speech begins to shift. He begins to talk to them in a slightly different way. He urges them to take heart There's an irony here in the angel's words to Paul. Paul was not, according to the angel, to fear the present circumstances because God's purpose was to bring him to the court of Caesar. And of course, we know who that Caesar is. It's Nero. And we know who Nero is. Nero's a bad guy. In fact, Nero is going to have Paul executed. But nevertheless, the encouragement that the angel gives to Paul from God is that he should not be afraid because it is God's purpose for Paul to go to Rome. And he also makes this incredible statement. He says that God has granted to you all those who are with you. At some point in this whole journey, Paul has been praying for God to grant him the lives of those who are sailing with him. And as a result of what Paul is hearing the angel saying to him, As the angel is relaying God's message to him, the way Paul starts to speak to his fellow comrades on this ship also changes. There's a transition here. If you look back at verse 10, chapter 27, verse 10, Paul makes this statement in verse 10. He says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Notice the word perceive. He had a perception. He had an opinion. They're debating. Do we put out from Fair Havens? Do we go ahead and try and make this 40-mile journey to Phoenix, or should we stay put? Of course, Paul's counsel is stay put. Don't go. But he says, I am perceiving that there will be great difficulty. That's not the same thing as an authoritative word from God. This is an opinion that is being offered, and yet when he gives them courage, when he seeks to encourage them, he speaks from a different place. Previously, he had said that he perceived the voyage would be with the loss of life, ship, and cargo, but now he's speaking with authority, not from his perception, not from his own opinion, not from a calculation of the probabilities. Now Paul is speaking from the word of God. Amen. Guys, I think the heat is starting to affect us. You're kind of halfway sleeping this morning. He's had God's own reassurance. 
The bold words might well have seemed like foolishness to the despairing crew. Paul stands up and says, hey guys, I saw an angel last night. Have courage. Do you feel encouraged by those words? If I were to say that to you this morning, hey guys, an angel just whispered in my ear, the heat is going to break later today. Go mow your grasses. Go mow your yards. Go mow your grasses. (laughs) Go mow your yards. Are you encouraged by that, or do you think that I've started to lose my rocker a little bit? Clearly, clearly. Okay, so why then would they believe Paul? They wouldn't. Why would Israel believe church? Israel, my goodness. Why would Great Britain, the United Kingdom, believe Churchill? What is happening here is subtle. There's no rousing like, yes, Paul saw an angel. We're going to live. That's not the response that they have. But Paul is telling them that what will happen has all been decreed by the word of God, regardless of whether or not they believe in that word. This is crucial for you and me as we are seeking to encourage each other. Notice how he speaks, how, it, how it's different. Previously, he had said, I perceive that if we go on this voyage, we're going to have a lot of hardship. There's going to be loss of life, loss of cargo, loss of ship. It's going to be bad. But now notice what he says. He says, take heart, verse 22, for boldly, he says it, there's no, I'm pretty sure, or I think. No, the way he speaks is powerful. He says, I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, they don't know where they are. They don't know how far they've been blown off course. They can't see the stars. They can't see anything. They have had nothing but total darkness and pitch raging seas for several days. And Paul says, guess what? I saw an angel last night. The ship is going to sink but you will live. That is impossible. How in the world is that going to come to play? He concludes his speech. He says in verse 26, we must run aground on some island. What Paul is hearing from the angel as the angel is relaying the word of God to him is that there's a sequence of events that are going to play out. They're going to crash onto the shoals of some island. They're going to shipwreck, essentially. And although that is a very dangerous thing to happen, nevertheless, God has given promises to Paul that all those who are with him are going to be saved. As they're hearing this, undoubtedly, they're questioning, like, what in the world? But you also have to realize that there is some small flicker, some small glimmer of hope that they may be placing in what Paul is telling them, maybe he did see an angel. Maybe God did speak to him. Maybe, maybe there is a chance. Now, they're not going to just buy that wholesale. They're going to receive that with a giant grain of salt. Nevertheless, what Paul is saying is this situation, as bad as it is, is about to get a lot worse. Nevertheless, God is even greater than this precarious situation. And this precarious situation, as it gets even worse, God is even greater than that situation. God is with us, and he has spoken, and he is going to rescue us. That's essentially what Paul says. Paul had God's own promise of safety. Therefore, Paul was able to speak not by saying, I'm pretty sure, or I think, or I perceive. He says it confidently. This is what's going to happen. 
He says it assertively. This is what's going to happen. There is no ambiguity. There is no beating around the bush. Paul is confident because he believes in God and he trusts exactly what God is going to say. He speaks God's word boldly. He speaks God's word assertively because he believes in God's word. And this is how he begins to take the courage which he himself is feeling from God's word. And this is how he begins to instill that courage in those around him. Paul writes in Romans, he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, courage, we all understand, is a function of faith. So how courageous we are feeling depends in large measure upon whom we're listening to. If you listen to people who are preaching doom and gloom, what do you think your natural outlook on life is going to be? Doom and gloom. If you constantly are bombarding yourself every day with messengers of the apocalypse, they're just telling you it's all going to end in ashes and flames, we're all going to die, COVID is going to kill us all. If you just listen to that all day long, every day, what will your inevitable reaction be in time? Well, that it is the end of the world. If we choose to listen to God's word, whatever may come to pass, we are assured that God is in control. We have to be mindful then in choosing whom we listen to. When Joshua needed courage to go into the land of Israel, he needed to listen to God. When Paul needed courage in order to go to Rome, in order to preach to Nero, he needed to listen to God. When these sailors who were basically giving up, despairing of life, basically committing suicide by throwing all their gear, all their tackle overboard, saying, we just want the ship to continue to bob if we can in the ocean. When they are despairing of any salvation, any rescue, what they needed to hear from the Apostle Paul was the word of God. When we seek to encourage those around us, all too often they come, they're facing some trouble and some difficulty, And our response to them is to say, oh, they're there, bud. It's not all that bad. I'm sure things will pick up. And they look at us and they're like, how do you know? And it's a legitimate question. How do you know? Are you surprised then they walk away? Man, that guy's just a downer. You can't cheer him up. Well, why would he be cheered by your own personal assurances? You are just a man or a woman as he or she is. There is no difference between you. If we are to encourage others, we must give them something to inspire hope. And we should not be surprised if they are not that encouraged when all we offer to them is more of ourselves. We have to give them God. And we have to give them God's word. Paul writes, In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. A false teacher can install a false courage. A false teacher can motivate individuals down a path that will inevitably lead to their destruction and their ultimate demise. You can have courage pursuing the wrong thing. Sincerity is no substitute for truth. 
This last week, I read about a bunch of um, Belgian soccer player, soccer fans who were trying to fly to Belgium in order to see a soccer game. They ended up in Bulgaria. They just misread the sign, and they bought tickets for the wrong flight. They weren't able to effectively communicate different languages. With, they weren't able to communicate with the agent at the gate. They landed in a different country, and for several hours, they believed they were in the right location. And they continued to insist to everyone they came to that they were there to watch the soccer game. They were dead convinced that they were in the right city. It was a painful realization that they were not going to make the soccer game that afternoon. Sincerity is no substitute for truth. There will be many who proclaim words of hope intended to encourage us, but we should never be encouraged by individuals who do not look to God's word as the foundation for encouraging us. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Courage comes by hearing from God. We, none of us, are God. If we would encourage those around us, we must take them back to Scripture. Now, in saying that, do we believe Scripture ourselves? This last week, my six, seven students, as their year-end Old Testament project, were required to stand up and give a seven-minute speech from their favorite passage of Old Testament Scripture. And please bear in mind that as, uh, as their teacher, I'm having a lot of grace. This is their first time they've ever had to stand up and speak. They have that fear of public speaking. They're, they're nerves. They're, they're, uh, they're not sure what it's going to be like. And, and we put them up here on the stage. We turn on the lights. It's like full meal deal. They've got the whole school sitting out front watching them. And now they have to talk about Scripture for seven minutes. And it all seemed relatively easy six weeks ago when Pastor Josh handed out the assignment. But in that moment when they stand up to speak... And people are looking at them, and I love you guys, but most of you don't realize how you look when you stare at me when I'm preaching. They didn't realize it either. And I told them, I said, when you get up there, everybody's going to be looking at you like this. (laughs) And they're not mad at you. They're not mad at you. That's just how people look when they're contemplating. And they said, yeah, that's funny. And I said, okay, well, you know, good luck. And sure enough, they get up here, and I'm sitting in the back row, And because this is like my job, you better believe I was doing it. You know, just just really exaggerated. And they get up here and they have their speech and they're like, and there's that moment of sheer terror, you know, that deer in the headlights kind of look. Of course, they muscled on, they, they stumbled their way through it. And again, I love them. This is their first time, so I'm not grading them overly harsh. But one of the things that I was very careful to listen for is they are giving their speech. They're, they're supposed to be speaking to their classmates from the scriptures, from God's word. They're supposed to be giving a spiritual truth or encouraging their classmates in some way from the scriptures. As they're giving this speech, one of the things that I listen for is, um, well, this is what I think. Or, um, this is my, my thoughts on this passage. We had spent the whole year drilling down into the text. They had written out the draft of their speech in advance. I'd read through it. I'd made sure it was rock solid to what the scriptures were saying. And I encouraged them all in the weeks leading up to it. When you stand up there, you give that speech. It is the word of God. I have walked with you through it. I've shown you how to pick this text apart. You believe in it and you speak it because it's the truth. And again, because it was their first time to handle something as powerful as the Word of God in front of a public audience, they were a bit timid, and that's okay. They'll grow. I'm in no way being critical. 
but I hear them say to their classmates, God loves you. At least that's my take on this passage. No. God has spoken. God loves you. Period. Full stop. The end. No equivocations. No hesitation. No waffling back and forth. And they'll grow in time. Don't get me wrong. They will. But when we look to how Paul seeks to encourage the sailors on his ship, he says, God has spoken. There's no, well, you know, here's what I think. You know, I, I'm, maybe I'm mistaken. I, I did see an angel. That's an unusual experience. Don't get me wrong. None of that. As crazy as it sounds, as ludicrous as it might come across, Paul is rock-solid confident. Yes, an angel talked to me last night. Paul, that sounds crazy. An angel spoke to me from the God whom I worship and to whom I belong. And he has told me, this is going to get worse. (laughs) We're going to wreck on an island somewhere. But good news, guys, as crazy as it sounds to you, I am completely convinced because God has spoken. Therefore, it is going to happen. We will survive. We will get through this. Not one of you is going to die. We're going to make it, and we're going to wreck on some island somewhere, and as traumatic as that experience is going to be, we will all come to land safely. Now, he doesn't, you know, kind of minimize the angel part, be like, well, you know, it was kind of like an angel, but the, the big thing here is God's word. You know, he doesn't, you know, kind of minimize or downplay the supernatural aspects of it. He doesn't minimize or downplay things pertaining to the angel or any of this kind of stuff. He doesn't try in his own wisdom to try to modify or to massage the message in order to boost their confidence. He doesn't think to himself, what do they want to hear? What do they need to hear? He doesn't do any of that sort of business. He says, this is what was spoken by the Lord through the angel. Here's what you need. This will give you courage. Take heart. Take heart. All too often, the problems with our efforts and encouragement is we start to think we know better than God. And we are more convinced of what people really need to hear than just letting God's word speak. All of us have had friends who have experienced difficult situations, troubling times, and we've all wanted to encourage them and to bolster them. Mistake number one is believing that you in yourself have anything helpful that can lift them up. What you do have, not in yourself, but what God has given you is his word. All encouragement should be grounded in that. But before you could ever encourage anyone else You yourself must believe in God's word. You must be convinced of it, and you must have settled your hope fully upon it. Once you do that, you will be effectively capable of ministering courage that is encouraging those around you. You say, why is any of that necessary? Why why can't we just be confident ourselves of what's going to happen and zip our lips and be quiet and who, who really cares whether or not the world around us has courage or not? Who really cares whether or not our brothers and sisters in Christ really are confident or not? The Lord cares. The Lord cares. Paul is praying to the Lord for the deliverance 
of everyone on this ship. Paul's heart, his life has been shaped. Everything he believes, everything he values has boiled down to this one irreducible truth, the good news of Jesus Christ. That God loved Paul, a serial killer, a murderer of Christians, the persecutor of the church. God loved him and died on the cross in order to save him from his sins. Having encountered that good news, Paul was so transformed, Paul was so radically altered, that he wanted to share that gospel with all those who, just like him prior to meeting Christ, are likewise perishing and facing an eternity in hell apart from God. He wanted to give them the good news that God loves them, that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to forgive their sins, in order that they might hope in God. He had said this previously in his trial before Agrippa. He had said, I pray, whether short or long, that everybody who hears these words of mine would become just like me, minus the chains. Now, Paul is so concerned for their eternal salvation. Well, you better believe he's also concerned for their temporary life, the the life that they live until they face the grave, in order that he might have more time to preach the gospel to them. He wants them to be saved from an eternal death. You better believe he also wants them to be saved from a temporary death. If he can prolong their life, he will do so in order to share the gospel with him. If you're here and you're thinking, why is it important for people to have courage? Why is it important for people to be lifted up? If you don't think it's important, then I wonder whether or not you have ever met Jesus Christ. His whole life ministry all of it was given for the sake of our lives. He came to heal. He came to love. He came to save. If we follow him, if we are his disciples, then the heart which was his, which he has promised to those who believe in him, that heart is very clear. We care about the well-being of everyone We care whether or not they have hope for the future. We care whether or not they are encouraged about tomorrow. Paul says, last thing, he says, the God whom I worship, notice this, verse 24, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. He precedes this statement by saying, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Paul is saying that he belongs to God and that he worships God. And that's the question that really undergirds everything we're saying here today. There is no reason for you to have hope for tomorrow. There is no reason for you to have hope for eternity if you do not belong to God. Paul is saying, my foundation, the rock upon which I stand, the wellspring from which all my hope and all my confidence and all my courage comes is from the God to whom I belong. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't 
minimize the danger or the risks that are involved. He gives them the bad news. It is really bad. As bad as the situation is, it's going to get worse. We're going to shipwreck. But he gives them confidence based upon what God has said. That they may begin to hope in the word of God. He gives them encouragement based on what God speaks in order that they might also hear that God sent his son Jesus to die for them. All too often, our approach is we're going to sugarcoat, we're going to minimize, we're going to downplay the situation. We do so believing that if we can just make it seem less bad, then somehow people will be confident and they'll go forward. But that's not really the strategy that Paul uses here. I mean, it's not really a great speech when you start off saying, see, I told you so. It's just not. But he doesn't end with, see, I told you so. He ends with the word of God. That's where he lands, and that's where you and I should land. Churchill made this speech, and all the people who heard it that day were depressed. He had told them for the first 20 minutes of the speech all of the stunning defeats, all of the losses, all of the hardships. He didn't sugarcoat any of it. He gave it to them straight. He told them exactly what had happened, and he told them exactly what was going to happen. And if you listen carefully to the conclusion of his speech, essentially what Winston is saying to the nation of Britain is that we're going to fight to the death. And the prospect of dying is very real. That's not going to be encouraging to anyone to hear that. He makes this really interesting comment at the very end. He says, if this island is subjugated and starving, he says, then our British fleet will sail away. (laughs) They'll leave us behind. And they will carry on the struggle from distant shores until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. What an interesting comment to make. Why did Churchill say this? Why did he choose to qualify this great heroic statement by saying, even if we all die and our island is subjugated and we're all starving to death, our brave sailors are going to leave us behind and they're going to carry on the fight from distant shores. It was a propaganda bonanza for the Third Reich. Hitler and his uh, propaganda machine took this and began pasting advertisements all across Europe and broadcasting it all across radio stations that, in effect, what Churchill was saying was that he was getting ready to evacuate the island and leave all of Britain behind to suffer the fate of the Third Reich and the Blitzkrieg. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? Why then, why then did Winston make this interesting final comment The reason was, and there was a compelling reason for this, was that the American government, under the leadership of President Franklin Roosevelt, had asked him to. The United States, of course, at this point in the war was still neutral. However, President Roosevelt had made it clear to Winston Churchill through backdoor channels, backdoor communications, that he wanted a public commitment from Winston Churchill, from the government of Britain, That even if the island were to be defeated, 
she would not hand over her naval armada to Germany. Roosevelt had offered the private, quiet assurances to Churchill that if he would make a public commitment, that no matter what, he would not hand over his navy. Roosevelt would begin to urge the United States to enter the war on Britain's side. And so it was that Churchill gave this message in which he said, even if we lose, our fleet will carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue of the old. Now that's Roosevelt's take on why Churchill said what he said. But years later, Churchill, in an interview, being asked about this speech, the question was posed, why did you say that? And his response was this, quote, because it is true. Whether the United States came to our rescue or whether God himself would come to alleviate our suffering, I believed that good would prevail. That's true hope. You and I can do nothing. We can defeat no adversary. We can overcome no obstacle in our own strength. But if we would have hope, it must be founded in God and those things to which he is committed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at your word this morning, as we think about the many friends, the brothers and sisters, which we have from time to time sought to encourage and cheer, as we have from time to time sought to lift others' spirits, God, we confess to you this morning that all too often we have grounded our encouragement in our own observations and in our own assessment, and that we have based our encouragement from what is within ourselves. Lord, we pray this morning that as we go forth into a dark and increasingly hostile world of individuals who are opposed to your gospel and who do not look with favor upon your word, Lord, help us not to minimize scripture, but to be courage in our con- to be courageous in our convictions regarding the scripture. Not to downplay the supernatural, not to do away with those things, the miraculous the seemingly impossible, but to stand boldly for what you have said. God, help us to do that. Help us to be encouraged by the truth of what you said, that we might help those around us to also be encouraged. Father, our prayer this morning, we echo this prayer. We will pray, God, that you help us to carry on telling the good news of Jesus Christ whatever lies in front of us, whatever dark days or hardships we may encounter, help us to continue telling others the good news of salvation, waiting patiently until the new world steps forward to rescue this old one. We look for your coming, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.